Gingivitis has been eroding the gum line of this great nation long enough. We can no longer be a nation indentured. Our very salivation is at stake. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. Krusty Krab is unfair. Mr. Krabs is in there, standing at the concession, plotting his oppression. We can't just have a march and rally and then go have a beer. Life in this society, being at best an utter bore, there remains the civic-minded, thrill-seeking, responsible females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. You picked the wrong femboy to mess with. Go to the Bureau of Free Love. It's not like a free love Soviet. You're, yeah, the bureaucracy. You got, oh, you got to fill out this paperwork. Well, when do I get the free love? No, you got to fill this up and you got to come back next Tuesday. You got to interview one. It's a bureaucracy. But it's free love in the end. Uh, Lucario is a spiritualist, possible Jill Stein voter. Ness and Lucas are in Japan. Hey, there's politics outside the U.S., you know. There's left-wing movements all over the world, okay? And I just think that's important. Sonic would be an accelerationist. And Jigglypuff, intersectional feminist queen. Oh, sure, let's see. I'm an elk, a mason, a communist. I'm the president of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance for some reason. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. And the real question is whether we have the will. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. I'm really proud of that intro. So this is uh, the left-wing reading hour, I sometimes call it, but this program, the Three Left Show, covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left-wing perspective. For a curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself, and importantly, for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. Those are the three lefts. The show attempts to create some emphasis between them, or at very least demonstrate that you kind of need all three like a like a nice sandwich you know you need your protein on the sandwich you need your vegetable on the sandwich and you need your um, cheese-like substance on the sandwich you need your wet substance right speaking as a you know speaking for the vegans out there don't don't otherwise for the non-vegans the carnivores omnivores you need you need your your lettuce tomato onion you need your meat your pastrami and you need your uh, provolone cheese um, although suppose Maybe I'm getting it a little. Those are the things that go between the bread. So why the bread? Maybe socialism's the bread. Anarchism is the uh, the toppings, and uh, ecology is the uh, vegetables. So it's a vegetable sandwich. There you go. All vegan. So, <laughs> uh, so I've had I've had a, a whole weekend of talking. So I I don't even know if I want to do the show. But here I am. So I must be doing the show. <laughs> For 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 ears to listen to, uh, I did a but I did a podcast ahead of time, so there will be uh, I have a show already, you know, halfway prepped, I suppose, so I can take a week off later. I did a podcast episode with uh, a YouTuber called the Mayhem Calling, uh, an anarchist that I I did the with the left wing Unity panel. Uh, he was one of the contributors there, so 
Of course, we connected afterwards. He was interviewing each person on the panel, more or less, uh, one at a time. So it was my turn. So um, I did I did two hours with him to make my show, and then I did two hours with him to do his show. Um, so that was a good time. And then, and then Sunday, uh, I did another stream with uh, Bread Theory, aka Zach, where we just reacted to random videos that people uh, suggested. Uh, always watching a new video of uh, a clip of VJ Pashad, uh, the Indian Marxist who is always fire, really lit guy. The goat. <laughs> He's, uh, you know, like if you like Noam Chomsky and you would like a younger, more angry and non-white version of him, VJ is your guy. And he was uh, at a panel discussion at, uh, you know, Glasgow where the cop is and pointing out once again that how condescending it is to say, look, India only burns coal because the British burn coal there. You gave us coal and now you're angry at us for burning coal. You know, who was it that took uh, how many trillion uh, sterling worth of wealth out of our country and didn't give any of it back whatsoever? Speaking of Britain, you know, he quoted, there's a particular thing that any any monument to civilization is usually also a monument to savagery. You know, you don't build build something without spilling some blood along the way. So speaking of uh, cracking heads and disrupting social movements, the uh, topic of this episode this week, I think my working title is Which Laws Are Worth Following? I think last time I mentioned something about, you know, this constitution of ours. It's very limiting, and uh, or at the very least, we, we, it's a good base, but it needs expanding. And so when we talk about patriotism or like, I want to defend the Constitution, like, well, I want to defend a Constitution that doesn't yet exist because I, it's not the Constitution I would like to defend. I would like one that guarantees my right to vote and wrote, vote for the person that I would want to vote for. It currently does not. You have no right to vote for a minority party. You have no right to vote at all, in fact. That's something only granted temporarily. It is a privilege. You know, rights aren't rights if they can be taken away. They have to be fought for. They have to be guaranteed by some force that is not just some law-abiding, well, something that says it's law-abiding. Because obviously, maybe it is not obvious, but I'll get into that, you know, the law keepers can break the laws. They, they break the laws very, very casually. Or they can always interpret the laws to their advantage. Speaking of the um, criminal justice system or injustice system. So the topic is kind of fighting. That's what I labeled it in my folders. But really, it's it's more about, um, I, say, I suppose, conflict and the levels of, of uh, aggression or defensiveness and balancing the two. Something that came up once or twice was the ability for radical movements, revolutionary movements, or hell, just any kind of progressive movement to balance between def being able to defend itself, build walls so that it isn't compromised by the establishment or authorities that they are fighting, that they are in fact in opposition to, and recognizing that. Because if they don't, then they're going to just keep losing like progressives in, in Congress or progressives in presidential elections. We have to support Biden, and then they get absolutely nothing. Nothing from infrastructure bills, nothing in and whatsoever, 
and even when you do get it, the ability to implement it isn't there because it was all cut by uh, moderates a long time ago. I refer to uh, something I just listened to, a Washington Post journalist referring to the fact that if if dental and ear care was put in glasses and eye care was put into Medicaid, it would take currently the Department of Health and Welfare five years to implement it. We would be into the next president by the time that people got the Biden infrastructure package, dental insurance. And that's only referring to people over 65. Just over 65. Maybe it's because it's that limited group that it takes longer to process. If it was universal, maybe it would be a little less paperwork. But as, as things are now, they don't have the staff. So where am I starting here? I think I will start with... Uh, a Facebook post by Antonio um, a guy I like, a guy I like to quote often because he makes good posts. Green Party organizer in the South, but also kind of Black Panther-ish politics. So this is a post he did right after Trump was quote-unquote deplatformed, you know, banned from Twitter, banned from most other social media things. Now he has his own site where he does the equivalent of tweeting, which is kind of interesting that even when he has a his own blog, basically, he's still just tweeting. He's just, he's just making posts that are a paragraph. So the question is not Trump's free speech. That is a distraction. The danger is normalizing and even celebrating the flexing of the ruling class in the capitalists, for coalescing under a coordinated total blackout of whomever politically threatens them. This is to send a message to the U.S. population, not just to Trump, lol. Their message is, uphold the established order or we will shut all of your communications down. The thing to understand is that the ruling class has no allegiance to anyone but profit in preventing working classes from taking power. They financed Latin American anti-communist thugs one day and then arrested them the next. They declared Al-Qaeda the greatest threat to the world one day and then financed them in the billions of dollars the next. They gave Trump 27 times the coverage of Sanders. They made him relevant because he seemed like an easy win for Clinton, who was the undisputed Wall Street pick, just as Biden was. Follow the goddamn money. But this blew up in their faces. So now they are flexing their muscles to silence an embarrassing problem. Who is at the wheel? Certainly not Trump, despite being elected. He couldn't even command the allegiance of his own appointed staff and judges. Unfortunately, this coordinated assault on the pro-Trump right will not cripple them and only feed into their persecutory demagoguery of what will become a more competent populist right. And should the working class begin to resist a system in decline, the capitalists will turn the tables and align themselves with that exact far right, just as they have historically. Right now, corporatist centrism is their preferred course of action because the Bidens, Pelosi's, Rubio's, Booker's, Romney's, and McConnell's, and even the squad are all in their pockets. Is corporate power deplatforming these people? No. The opposite. Again, Trump steals the news, and the pawns and rightists who thought Trump had their backs are playing on the news 24 7. I'm oh, sorry, not us, Don Lemon, not Medicare for All or the foreclosure crisis. No, this frickin' article of impeachment. So they are being given the platform of a lifetime. The only way to fight fascism is with a mass party of labor that fights for socialism. Not via temporary alignment with the Dems 
or U.S. empire. The opportunistic alliance with the Democrats and NGO complex is what has crippled our independence, referring to the left, and the opportunities but by left, the workers, working class. Even you can consider middle class people. Though sometimes, quote unquote, middle class, professional class, or coordinator class would be more accurate, do get what they want sometimes. Because they're still relatively comfortable. They're just aggrieved uh, when cultural mores are... Printed uh, upon, you know, they're the quote-unquote woke culture, so to speak. So should an organized militant working class party or organization ever become a serious threat, they will do the same. However, celebrating a coordinated blackout means that we are willing to abdicate corporatist narrowing of acceptable political speech before we organize. But be aware, we didn't shut down Trump, the Wall Street class, and the highest levels of the political class did. They are... By that coordinator class. I like calling them coordinator class because it's, we have so many other terms. I like to use one that's kind of like what, what do they do? They coordinate things. So they are seeking to reestablish order to their near totalitarian bourgeois, meaning liberal democracy, corporatocracy. You know, corporate socialism. <laughs> no, the corporate, otherwise known as corporate communism. <laughs> that's some white right wingers call it corporate communism. Or the fascist, that's what the fascists call it, you know, because they, they can't just call it capitalism. That's, that's a good thing to them. But so it's corporate communism. Follow the money and the power. This is a question of power. Legitimizing corporate power to silence anyone who stands up to not only the government, but imperialism and U.S. empire to make it suicidal. And he does mean by, you know, working class mass party. He's a member of the Greens. I'm a member of the Greens. I think it's the closest thing we have. But obviously... Very, very far too. So close yet so far. So on on the on the uh, on the same uh, half as that. Speaking of uh, basically coordinator class disrupting slash keeping the keeping us down is a piece from the Guardian. Now a lot of the pieces I'm sharing this time are actually much older. They're all from either the spring or even last winter, and I've been keeping them. Close because or because I collect these stories because I could cover them one by one on them on their own, but I like kind of putting them side by side. That way you get a more broader picture of things. So this is uh, called the U.S. targeted. You know, it's got the it's got the tag that says this is more than two months old. Oh, thank you. I didn't know that. No, I did. So U.S. targeted Black Lives Matter activists in bid to disrupt movement report finds. But U.S. meaning you know the government, the actual freaking government so it's this whole like so there's the narrative of like oh the government's being taken over by these uh black marxists these blm radicals really because <laughs> they were crushing us or, or rather they were disrupting us and whatever okay let's get into the facts here coalition of civil rights groups documents federal persecutions of activists after the murder of george floyd last year the federal government deliberately targeted BLM protesters via heavy-handed criminal prosecutions in an attempt to disrupt and discourage the global movement that swept the nation and beyond last summer after Minneapolis police killed Floyd during a new report. Movement leaders and experts said the prosecution of protesters over the past year continued a century-long practice by the federal government rooted in structural racism to suppress black social movements via the surveillance tactics and other mechanisms. The report was released by the Movement for Black Lives, coalition of over 50 activism and advocacy groups and professional org organizations 
associations representing black communities and published in partnership with, let's see, the group CLEAR, Creating Law Enforcement Accountability and Responsibility, which is based out of the City University of New York School of Law. The empirical, their quote, the empirical data and findings in this report largely collaborate, meaning proof, that black organizers have long known intellectually, intuitively, and from lived experience about the federal government's desperate policing and prosecution of racial justice protests and related activity. The report, which uh, was first shared with the AP, Associated Press, place you always want to go for the facts of a, of a story, not CNN or all others. So the AP, um, it was shared with the AP, which argues that as the uprisings in the summer of 2020 increased, so did police presence, the deployment of federal agents, and the prosecution of protesters. So this whole, like, the police were weak and they were pulling back and that wasn't what anyone was experiencing if you were actually out in the street. So there was the there was the projection on TV and cable news that everything's out of control and the police are are just standing by and and oh you know they're saying oh well we're gonna if people are gonna say we're mean then we're not gonna do our jobs. They were doing their jobs. They just were redirecting their energy like a martial artist, I guess. Titled "Struggle for Power: The Ongoing Persecution of Black Movement by the U.S. Government." The report details how policing has been used historically as a major tool to deter black people, or any really other working people, from engaging in their right to protest and to weaken efforts to draw attention to issues affecting black Americans. This is why I always kind of cringe or roll my eyes when people speak of a free, us as a free country. Oh, you have a right to protest. I'm like, yeah, so long as you're not actually challenging power. As soon as you do, you're disrupted. You're actually shown roadblocks start suddenly magically appearing to prevent you from protesting. If not protesting at all, but protesting effectively. Think of the free speech zones that were put up around political conventions. Okay, you have a right to protest, but only in this box. It also draws a comparison to how the government used counterintelligence program techniques, quote, to disrupt the work of the Black Panther Party and other orgs fighting for black liberation or even black autonomy. We want to really show how the U.S. government has continued to persecute the black movement by surveillance and by criminalizing protest and by using the criminal legal system, uh, see they call it legal system, not justice system, to prevent people from protesting and punishing them for being engaged in protests or by attempting to curtail their First Amendment rights. Uh, This is uh, Amara Iani, their policy research coordinator. It is undeniable that racism plays a role, she says. It is structurally built into the fabric of this country and its institutions, which is why it's been so difficult to eradicate. It's based on institutions that were designed around racism and around devaluing black people and the devaluing of black lives. How do you know this? Well, as soon as you say, can you center black lives and the, the, the clubs come out. Some case, most cases, like in Albany, tear gas. Never used before in our city's history. And as soon as there's... Black Lives Matter, tear gas comes out. In black neighborhoods, by the way. The group, also known as M4BL, is demanding reparations from the government that include an acknowledgement and apology for the long history of targeting movements. You know, never mind reparations for slavery. How about just post-slavery political uh, harm? 
So it's also pushing the passage of what is called the Breve Act, proposed federal legislation that would radically transform the country's criminal, now they call it justice system, and ending the use of joint terrorism task forces in local communities. A big problem. They just usually scoop up innocent people and say, hey, we, we found a terrorist. Now we'll prosecute them for the next 10 years. See, they're terrorists because they're in, they're in jail. They wouldn't be in jail if they weren't terrorists. The report also points to the stark difference in how the government handled the COVID-19 protests against local government shutdowns and mask mandates during the same period. It analyzes 326 criminal cases initiated by U.S. federal prosecutors over alleged conduct related to protests in the wake of Floyd's murder and police killings of other black Americans, going from May to October of 2020. A key finding of the report is that the push to use federal charges against protesters came from top-down directives from Trump and former Attorney General Barr. The two orgs doing the study found that 92.5% of the cases, there were equivalent state-level charges that could have been brought against defendants, mostly with less severe potential sentences. You know, they went for the harshest sentence. We saw Barr overnight go from expressing some level of sympathy for racial justice protesters to label them as radical and violent agitators with absolutely no basis for that sort of characterization. But it wasn't quite surprising, was it? This is from uh, Razami Kasim, founding director of CLEAR and a law professor at Cooney, adding that it was very transparently aimed at disrupting a black-led movement for social justice that was happening both spontaneously and in organized fashion nationwide. Race data was also was only available for 27% or 89 of the defendants. Of that number, half were identified as black. Of the black defendants, 91 were male. Portland, Oregon led the number of change, but I just maybe don't know. It was a very heterogeneous crowd. There were just as many women and just as many black and white. Portland, Oregon led to the number of charges brought for protest-related activity, making up 29% of federal charges. Chicago, Las Vegas, D.C., Minneapolis followed. So that's that article. So the report would probably give all of the more deep data and facts to back up the, you know, the rhetoric of the article. It's a Guardian piece, after all. It's not, it's not the finest writing I read, but... Uh, Whatever, it was, uh, the title is what attracted me. I wanted to cover that side of things. Okay, let's, ha- let's see how that works. But, oh, yeah, BLM, they were radical. They were out of control. Rioters, looters. Well, oh, yeah, and the Antifa. Antifa, the worst. Oh, the Antifa, terrorists, domestic terrorists. Well, let's uh, move on with uh, part two here, where I... Sp- Speak of from a blog called Partyless Politics. Don't quite like their cut of that jib, but it's basically sticking. You know, starting from the place of you know they're smart enough to know that uh, the two parties are very similar and that it's a duopoly, moderate, and it's a capitalist class. Though they don't have that analysis, they're dead. They're not. They're not that going that far to have a class analysis here. But what they do point out, and I guess maybe their thing is that they are just fair and balanced. They're like, oh, both sides are equally wrong. or They're not quite like, no, they're not like that. Why? Because um, the piece I'm covering from this site 
is called Left Wing Violence in the United States is Completely Made Up. Pointing this out. Uh, written by one of the writers. Goes by moniker Quiet Mike. So let's go into it. Trump and his Fox News friends love to lie and fearmonger. They would have you believe that the country is being taken over by what Trump called far-left fascism. Now maybe I should stop for a moment, stop the reading, and point out that all of these things are, you know, last year. Some, of the, Yeah, some of them are... Yeah, this was July of 2020, and this and the other article was also about 2020. I mean, it's just a year ago, but it seems so far away now, right? Because we have a new president, right? Because the things are so different. We're, we've returned to normal. President Biden, yeah. Well, perhaps this... I have some articles maybe in the next hour that are a little more recent, or at least were written more, this year. And it doesn't hurt to go back a year... And feel like there's some actual continuity at work here. That things that happened last year in the last four years do, in fact, still affect the present. And that uh, we shouldn't pretend that things have shifted or, I don't know, like 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 an internet commentator. Now, now that Biden's president, I'm going to stop punching right and I'm going to start punching left. Without, without a Republican president... You know, it's no longer fun to bash the right. We don't have to fight. It almost feels like we don't have to fight the right because now we have a Democrat in office. Insane. Insane. Or rather, it's not insane. It's very rational for a market actor. So, okay, going forward. They insist, speaking of right-wingers, that left-wing violence is rampant across the country and that Antifa should be designated a terrorist organization. But I also want to point out, look at how this all kind of goes away from the you know, public eye as soon as a Democrat is elected, but also that you have to keep changing what you're afraid of. Otherwise, I mean, what happens? I, I think because it's so flash in the pan, you know, you can, get, you can get some old people upset about Antifa, but I think a month passes. They realize that Antifa has not barged down their door. Uh, they haven't seen it on their block. When they say, oh, I know how these people are, you know, they might be referring to someone they met 30 years ago or something that happened to them or someone they knew in another state. Um, but then, well, time passes and things haven't actually changed for them. You have to give them something else to be afraid of. That would be critical race theory, trans agenda, just like the gay agenda. It's just not enough to say that. Because once, you know, once the gay agenda wins... And then you realize that you're still, you know, mildly comfortable and that your moral integrity hasn't been compromised and the world of the country hasn't burned down. Uh, but, you know, maybe you think it all, it's all gone worse. Well, there's always data to say otherwise. But anyway, first thing first. There is no such thing as far-left fascism. Thank you. Extreme far-left ideology is called communism and it's the exact opposite. Second, if you did the least bit of research, you would realize that left-wing violence in the U.S. is virtually non-existent. If you're lost as to where to look, a new database of nearly 900 politically motivated attacks and plots in the U.S. since 1994 reveals the facts. The most eye-opening of which, if you lean to the right, is that the number of Antifa, meaning anti-fascist, related fatalities over that time stands at just one. And in that instance, the person killed was the one perpetrating it. The database in question was compiled by researchers at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, centrist think tank, reviewed by The Guardian. 
meaning the study was reviewed. So I guess that that's what counts as peer review, the Guardian. Uh, okay. So the database lists 21 victims killed in left-wing attacks since 2010. There were 117 victims of right-wing attacks in the same period, approximately six times more. Attacks inspired by Muslim jihadist groups, in comparison, killed 95. But he says in a later paragraph that half of those were the... Um, now I, I, They don't give the name of it again, but it was the nightclub shooting, the one in Orlando. You remember the one. Oh, it does say that. No. Yeah, but it's still... Jihadist groups in comparison killed uh, almost 100 less since 2010 than right-wing groups. According to The Guardian... The, the researchers here at the Central Think Tank categorized most deadly left-wing attacks as killings of police officers by black men. Many of them were U.S. military vets who described acting out of anger or retribution for police killings of black Americans, which isn't quite politically motivated because it's more like revenge killing, which is just another type of murder, but murdering like more institutional people, more than, like a version of going postal. More than half of the jihadist-inspired attacks between 2010 and 2020 came from the single attack of the gay nightclub in Orlando, which occurred in 2016, if you forgot, which you probably did. I certainly didn't memorize the fact. It's not a stretch to say that right-wing violence, as it always has, stems from a hatred of color, nationality, sexual orientation. While left-wing violence, however, comes from rejection or pushback of that hatred. Neither of which is acceptable, of course, but it's the difference between being the bully and standing up to one. Despite the facts, White House officials have reiterated the president's warnings of a violent left-wing revolution following protests over George Floyd's murder. Attorney General William Barr said, quote, Groups of outside radicals and agitators are exploiting the situation to pursue their own separate, violent, and extremist agenda. Except... Police reform is considered a violent, uh, radical agenda. Unless, you know, it's whatever you've, you see Dems actually passing and saying it's police reform. I mean, some of it counts, but it's also very weak sauce, too. A new Justice Department task force on violent anti-government extremism listed Antifa as a major threat and failed to mention white supremacists at all. So this is kind of referring back to the um, Guardian piece. William Barr saying... Uh, outside radicals and agitators. Now that, that is a common phrase used by reactionaries or U.S. authorities regarding any bottom-up movement in America. That it's always outside agitators, outside radicals. Oh, our, our people under us are good and wholesome and know their place. And if someone's stirring them up, and if they're being, and they're stirred up, it's got to be someone from the outside. Who's outside of America now when the whole world's America? Well, I guess China is in America. So that's why you have the xenophobia of that. The ever-shifting new Cold War, which doesn't seem to even know what its main target is. But that's actually, that's the thing about the developing multipolar world, that the threat is almost everyone else. It is, in fact, everyone else. You know, more of the world is developing. More of the world is being able to stand up, speak with its own voice politically. You know, South American, Africa, of course, Middle Eastern areas. You know, the, the Arab Spring was a, a part of that, was the beginning of it. 
And of course, East Asia or China no longer have to play nice or do what Washington wants. And this is uh, this cannot be abided. And it's not because what Washington wants is, no, is peace, love, and justice. I think if you know anything about American history of imperialism, you know it's not the case. It's really just being able to be treated as equals. That's what's really at stake here. The, we can't be able, we can't, if we can't exploit people, we have to treat them as equals. Our economy is going to crash big time, bigly. According to Seth Jones, a counterterrorism expert who led the compilation of this data, he quoting him, left-wing violence has not been a major terrorist threat. He went on to say that the most significant domestic terrorism threat comes from white supremacists, anti-government militias, and a handful of individuals associated with the Boogaloo movement that are attempting to create a civil war in the U.S. That's a pretty interesting statement there. I mean, this is a centrist speaking, right? If you ask the Boogaloos, they say, oh, we just want to defend ourselves. We're, uh, we're actually just centrist libertarians. We want to actually work with uh, you know, left, post-left anarchists and stuff like that. They seem to just want to show up and defend property, which uh, was kind of what uh, Rittenhouse was doing and and whatnot. But uh, I don't know. It's like they're 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 they have their hearts in the right place by the way they talk. Their spokespeople talk, but their tactics and the way they go about it just kind of says you look like maniacs, <laughs> right wing. You look like right wing maniacs. The fact that their name Bulu Movement is a joke. And that they actually wear Hawaiian shirts. It's like, you, you can't be ironic revolutionaries. Stop it. <laughs> you don't, we don't want to work with you. We can't take you seriously. No matter how like uh, sincere they sound. Anyway, that's quite a digression there. But most people who pay attention were already aware of Mr. Jones' data findings before they came out. There is just no left-wing equivalent to the Dylan Roofs of the U.S., US. The only real act of left-wing violence that I can remember was at the hands of an anti-Trump gunman, James Hodgson, who shot up a group of D.C. Republicans at a baseball practice in 2017, but Hodgson was the only one who actually killed, because there are actually cops around. Uh, researchers who observe extremist groups at the Anti-Defamation League and the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism also said that they were unaware of any single murder linked to an American anti-fascist in the last 25 years. Most left-wing violence is victimless in the sense that it's mostly physical, not physical harm to individuals, but property. Most of it, you know, the violence of the president in Fox News, it alludes to the example of destruction of property and graffiti. Hardly violent crime, but again, it normally is in response to injustices bestowed upon them or as a form of protest. I mean, to, to attack property is truly the most un-American thing. You know, to to attack uh, mask mandates and public health is uh, is practically um, virtuous. So when you hear President Trump or his supporters use left-wing violence or Antifa as an excuse to call in his secret police, just remember the real threat comes from the other side, the same side that owns all the guns and pretends that they're here to protect democracy while at the same time they suppress it. Of course, Democrats suppress democracy too, just in different ways. And they also call the cops on you. And really hate it when you, uh, you know, attack property. Because they, they own property, too. But a lot of us don't. Um, half of us, at least in my city, don't. Okay, yeah, rolling through things. I wonder if I'll run out of articles and I'll need to find some more. 
But for the rest of the hour, let's go forward with, now that I brought up left-wing violence and the extremism of the far right, and in the context of, um, you know, in the number, this and the next one I'll do, which will be in the next hour, will also be correlated with as, like, things that I would have read right after January 6th, because that's when they were written, but I was wanted to talk about other stuff then, and uh, I'd rather, when I react to things, I... I want to put it in the context of some wider topic, which is how I structure this show. So even if it takes a year before you actually hear my concrete on-air um, take on July 6th or, or reaction to it via someone else, um, know that it's to bring it around to the bigger picture. An opinion piece from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Biden could curb right-wing extremism with one weird trick. Ending the U.S. Forever War, written by a Will Bunch. So, subheadline is, America's endless wars have helped a new generation of alienated vets, some of whom join extremist movements. Biden must curb U.S. militarism. We are to curb them. Air Force veteran Ashil Babbitt survived stints in Iraq and Afghanistan, where she helped guard military bases at the peak of America's wars in those regions, the mid-late aughts. Instead, she lost her life fighting her own government in the corridors of the Capitol on January 6th, gunned down by Capitol Police, an officer in particular, at the front of a crowd trying to smash toward the nearby House chamber and prevent the counting of the 2020 Electoral College votes that would make Joe Biden president. Seconds before the fatal shot, a video captured her compatriots smashing a window and shouting, We don't want to hurt no one. We just want to go inside. What the hell does that even mean? So why do you want to go inside if you don't want to hurt anyone? Or the very least, I mean, they made it clear. They want to disrupt the counting, right? But you're going to have to, you're going to, have to punch somebody to do that. <laughs> Push somebody around or whatever. I don't know. Again, as I've, I pointed out to others, uh, time piece by piece, you know, they, how they took, you know, capital, they didn't take it. They weren't prepared to take the building or hold it or, or even, I mean, they, they weren't even breaking a lot of stuff, right? They were just being there, and that was, you know, offensive enough. But what if they actually did take the council chamber? I'll have to dig it up, but there is this story I saw a uh, year, for the last two years, maybe it was three years ago. But it was, uh, it was uh, in the past three years, I guess. But it was how a group of students in Taiwan basically barricaded themselves in the government parliament chamber for two days. That's how you disrupt government. That's left-wing protest. Or allude to that. That's an allusion to later, later article. Uh, so anyway, Babbitt's death came at the end of what her friends and family described as a descent into a rabbit hole of right-wing extremism and conspiracy theories that began not long after her 14 years of military service ended. Assumed she didn't have much else to do. But also, you know stew in whatever trauma she had or a psychosis from you know soldiering while she struggled to make it all the as the small business owner of a pool cleaning service which a sign proclaimed as a mask-free zone in the time of coronavirus on the last full day of her life babbitt wrote on twitter in the apocalyptic language of the q conspiracy theory that believes in a deep state Sex trafficking cabal that corrupted America, proclaiming nothing will stop us. They can try and try and try, but the storm is here and is descending upon D.C. in less than 24 hours. Dark to light. 
My sister was 35 and served 14 years. To me, that's the majority of your conscious adult life, Babbitt's brother told the New York Times. If you feel like you gave the majority of your life to your country and you're not being listened to, that is a hard pill to swallow. That's why she was upset. Mm, that's why anyone's upset. This could be why black people... Uh, what, what? This could be why black people are upset, because you spend your whole life not being listened to. Now, if you own property, maybe you're middle class, a uh, coordinator, you know, because you... Uh, you got a leg up through um, various programs. Uh, you you have a place in the in the hierarchy, and you're maybe less upset. And then you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be. Let's not go too far with police reform. I don't want to get rid of the police. Babbitt was far from the only disillusioned U.S. military vet drawn to the insurrection at the Capitol. She was joined by the likes of the retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. Larry Radal Brock Jr., who'd served as a flight commander in Afghanistan, and now was captured on video on the floor of the Senate in a combat helmet and full tactical gear, carrying zip-tie handcuffs. Like Babbitt, friends said they watched Brock become increasingly radicalized in support of Donald Trump and his political movement. Family members told the Times, Ronan Farrow, that the Air Force remains central to Brock's identity, and as one said, he used to tell me that I only saw the world in shades of gray, and that the world was black and white. One radical right-wing group with a heavy presence at the storming of the Capitol was the Oath Keepers, a group geared towards current and former members of both military and domestic law enforcement that was founded by a former Army paratrooper named Stuart Rhodes around the time that Barack Obama was elected America's first president, a black president. But let's just, we could drop that and say when Barack Obama was elected president. Ahead of that insurrection, but see, you know, to, to some people, it's kind of important that he was black. Hmm. Ahead of the insurrection, Rhodes told the LA Times that these were pissed-off patriots that were going to accept that were not going to accept their former form of government being stolen. In one of the more chilling videos from the Capitol, a line of a half dozen oath keepers wearing combat gear marches towards the seat of U.S. government through the chaotic mob with steady military precision. As this. Justice Department and other investigators continue to sort out what really happened on that bloody Wednesday on Capitol Hill. It's increasingly clear. Wasn't that, well, I mean, yes, some people died, but calling it like a bloody Wednesday, like comparing it to other historical events with bloody in their name, where it's basically like, it's not like half the crowd was mowed down by machine gun fire. That's what a bloody Wednesday is like to me. Okay. Uh, you know, like um, like what happens to black communities during quote, their actual race riots, where whites burn down black neighborhoods. Those are bloody Sundays. Or the Battle of Blair Mountain, where coal miners are gunned down. Or the Pullman strike, where workers were gunned down. <laughs> but yeah, okay, moving on. As the Justice Department and other investigators continue to sort out what really happened on that bloody Wednesday, okay, it's increasingly clear that military vets were disproportionately involved. About 20% of those arrested, charged in connection with the riot, had served in the military, a group that comprises only 7% of the general population. To some experts, the arrests highlight a disturbing trend in American life that's existed since the bitter end of the Vietnam War, a kind of blowback in which troops that were trained to fight and kill for one vision of democracy overseas, you know, white supremacist one, turn on their own government in their disillusion once back home. That's funny. When we lefties usually use the word blowback, we're referring to when we go out abroad and make war, uh, nation build, 
and uh, people abroad hate us and uh, hit back. That's what we refer to as blowback. <laughs> but again, a kind of blowback. They, they said a kind of. And they put blowback in quotes. So I think if I, if I actually click the word blowback, it'll probably link me to the actual concept I just described. So we see a spike in activity every after every major war. Kathleen Buell, the University of Wisconsin historian, told The New Yorker. In 2018, Buell's book, Bring the War Home, drew a powerful line between the disenchantment of returning vets and the rise of white power movements in the 80s. She said she saw the same phenomenon at work at Capitol Hill, where the about to be slain Babbitt described her fellow writers as boots on the ground, said, Bo- said Ballou. I don't think we have to look very far to see this as a ricochet of warfare. It's important to note here that we are talking about a fraction of the 2.7 million service members that took part in Iraq or Afghanistan, a group that includes large numbers of vets doing good things in their communities, even working in some cases to reduce the aggressive U.S. military posture they participate in. Indeed, the Capitol Police officer who was trying or was killed trying to hold them off the mob had also served overseas. The America, in America, as a society, frankly gives its former soldiers and sailors too many reasons to feel unwelcome or otherwise disconnected when they come home. Despite some of that is embedded in a lack of support, including the historically poor performance of the VA, Veterans Administration, that has festered under both Democrat and Republican administrations. But that's the thing, you keep screaming for smaller government and smaller government and then when you want government, it's too small to help you, or it sucks. But again, when it comes to white supremacy, look, it's okay to have big government, but it has to be for me, not for anyone else, for me. And if the framing is that like it can only be for me if it isn't for anyone else. So it needs to be cut for other people. But, you know. When you're not a capitalist or in the coordinator class, when you're the workers, and yes, military personnel are a type of worker, uh, you're not going to be the beneficiaries of a cut government because it's not going to be for you. But see, the deal is, say I'm white, so I'm included in the ruling class as white people. But got news for them. You're not. It's not black and white. It's not racial. It's capitalism. But it uses race to get these workers on board to be to be their cudgel. But as the as the first kind of uh, post I read kind of outlaid that look the who the ruling class turns to to use against to put to pit against other segments shifts cycle to cycle. It'll be it'll be guys like me one time, and it'll be guys like uh, the Oath Keepers another, and 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 so on. Who will be next? Gamers, I guess. That only comes to mind because uh, in the uh, the circus of the Rittenhouse trial, what I saw listed by the Hill as one of the things the prosecute that makes the prosecution incompetent was that they were using the gamer, with not the defense, but the gamer offense, the uh, posture, saying that Dylan Roof was violent because he played video games. And that the gun he used was similar to one in Call of Duty. Uh, but it's kind of the opposite. The guns in Call of Duty are similar to real guns because there's military support for the development of those games. 
the industry goes to the military for authenticity, just as the movie industry does. The military then approves and sometimes even writes or at least edits the scripts of games and movies. Another form of American militarism in practice and how um, politics actually affects culture, not culture affects politics. I mean, it's a cycle where they... Also, uh, but I also mean much more broadly that our country's embrace of militarism as our face to the world, including the unending post-11, not forever war, creates lifelong post-traumatic stress and other psychological wounds among the too many who fight it. Even veterans who don't see frontline combat face a difficult adjustment from the camaraderie of their units to, you know, where they actually have community, to increasingly atomized, individualistic, and harsh America that waits at home you know, the country they were defending. But that, that but that's the irony, right? That's what they were defending. You know, freedom, justice, the American way. That's what they were defending. So it's, it's poetic injustice. Because obviously they don't deserve it as people. For a minority, conspiracy theories or extremism can provide a new form of social cohesion, a bit a dangerous one. But it is a found community nonetheless. Uh, some people just say you're right, no matter what. There's a simple way to curb some of the radicalism and dis- disillusionment that's caused by sending so many young and women to fight a muddled forever war that continues for nearly 20 years as our reasons for sending troops to dangerous situations uh, like in the Middle East become less and less clear, especially to those boots on the ground. Our new President Biden could show a seriousness to finally ending these wars and creating an American foreign policy that doesn't need to be enforced with constant drone strikes and even park any chain of military bases. Of course, he is not going to, not on his own. As I write this, the 46th president is enjoying the honeymoon his first week in office. So this is earlier in the year. Indeed, the indications are the magical inertia of Oh, sorry, the magnetic inertia of American militarism will continue under Biden as it does every under every U.S. president. After all, the Republicans and Democrats in Congress who barely speak to one another the other 364 days of the year managed to hold hands and pass a massive $740 billion defense bill over, even over Trump's veto. While the incoming Biden team has signaled a policy shift on Yemen is coming soon, the future for American troop presence in the Middle East is very much up in the air. Of course, this was before the events of the summer, but hey, history moves forward. Ways for no man. Biden's best quality in his 50-year political career has been his ability to adapt to changing times. It's still early enough in his presidency to hope that his team will make the connection between our bloated Pentagon spending and his ambitious domestic agenda, though they do not at all. Once again, January 6th brought the war home to America. We act shocked when a nation is too often executes its foreign policy at the barrel of a tank, finds that here at home we've not become not only armed to the teeth, but that increasingly seems unable to solve what should be political debates without apocalyptic talk of civil war. When it comes to drawing down the morally coercive power of militarism on American life, the book stops with the president. I disagree. I think it stops with having a cohesive anti-war coalition that understands um, basically what this man has just explained. That political and civic solutions depend on us not being at war with each other, and that goes further to be include America being at war with the rest of the world. 
which, more or less, even if you don't, even if it isn't declared, we are. Just talk to anyone affected by AFRICOM. That's the U.S. military presence in Africa. Bases, special ops, ugly stuff. So that that's the end of the first hour. I'm going to check out for a bit and play some music. Guess, but in the next hour, I'll cover Black Agenda Report piece, which kind of um, echoes what I started the hour the show with, and then talking about the tug and pull between right wing extremism and left wingers, and uh, and rebellion overall in America. Okay.
Welcome back to the Three Left Show. That was Moon Music, War Theme of America from Civilization Six, or maybe it was five. I forget. One of them. Back to the show. Back to talking about uh, not just, I guess, general like U.S. unrest. You know, quote unquote, civil war. What does it even mean? But really, um, it's actually more. Uh, this show is more. This episode is more about resistance and integrating radical resistance or more serious kinds of um, unrest. Kind of relating uh, January 6th, actually reviewing that stuff and reviewing white-wing violence and how it may intersect with also left-wing organizing in some terms. And the left slash the rest of our ability to defend ourselves, or at least those who don't have nor want police protection because police aren't really here to protect everybody. It's a liberal government. If you're not liberal, if you're a worker, then you uh, may not uh, be protected. So let's see. We got a piece, another essay slash uh, column, uh, from the Black Agenda Report, from their, I think, new um, managing editor, Margaret Kimberly, also their singer, a senior columnist. And it's called Freedom Writer. Or rather, Freedom Writer is the name of the column. It's her column. And it's titled, Why the Left Don't Protest. Now, she has a very specific target here. Same one as uh, Antonio, who um, I quoted in the beginning. Uh, and this kind of echoes that, or he echoes her. And I echo them a little, not too often, but going to keep repeating it, I suppose, since it's something that I want to be about and none of people hear it, or if they hear it, it's in passing and it's from the mouth of someone like Jimmy Dore, where you, you know, you're against the duopoly, but you'll never stand for any other kind of organization. If you do, it's temporary. And then, oh, look at that. You're chasing dollars and you're anti-vax now. That's Jimmy Dore (laughs) referring to the People's Party. But interestingly enough, the only thing the People's Party did last election was endorse some Greens. Or they endorsed, I, I, don't, I don't know what their balance sheet was, but I'm told they endorsed some Greens. <laughs> Which is interesting because some of their numbers were like ex-Greens who didn't want to be Greens anymore. But if they're just going to endorse Greens, then they should fall in. But I think that the point of the People's Party is like, oh, we want to be able to endorse anybody. Isn't that what the DSA is supposed to do? But... No, the DSA just endorses Democrats. So, there you go. Although, no, they've, they've endorsed some independent people, but it's special cases. Anyway, getting off topic. That's what I covered last week. But you notice I'm leapfrogging from my rhetoric uh, last week, because it's just been a week ago. Compare me to uh, a year ago, or uh, three, six months ago, or something. Those are larger leaps. So, um... The worst, so this is also written right after January 6th, but January 20th of this year. The worse the political and economic crisis becomes, the more lethargic the U.S. left behaves, as if generations of collaboration with corporate Democrats has sucked the life out of them. So until they, yeah, so the sight of a Donald Trump-incited mob storming the U.S. Capitol was a political turning point for this country. It confirmed the worst fears of the outgoing president and his supporters, but ironically has also empowered right-wing tendencies, which are, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, worst fears about the outgoing president, yeah, referring to Trump, 
but also empowered right-wing tendencies which are never far from the surface. There are cries for domestic terror legislation, which is unneeded and which will be directed not at Trump's deplorables, but against the left. The event also amplified positive feelings. And by the way, when I say, like, what do you mean it will be anti-domestic terror legislation will be aimed against the left? I refer to the article I read to the guard, you know, by the Guardian about BLM targeted by the Fed. That's who the Fed considers domestic domestic terrorists, more so than right wingers. But if the deal is, oh well, go after right wingers too, along with social movements, that's not a deal that I'm for. <laughs> I'd rather they go after no one then, since as far as you know, on the street they don't go after the right. They march with them or aside them. They're buddies, like like Rittenhouse. The event also amplified positive feelings about the incoming Biden administration, feelings based on hope and not facts. There are many legitimate questions surrounding January 6th Capitol riot, how it happened, who planned it, what their motives were. It's nice to read things in hindsight, right? In addition to investigating the incident, there must be a discussion about the absence of any effective left-wing activism. Why are the right wing so determined to make their voices heard while what passes for a left wing is largely silent. Why aren't the left marching on Washington? They have much to be concerned about, and the issues of great importance to them are routinely ignored by Republican and Democrats alike. Millions of people are suffering and have more reason to, quote, take their country back than Trump supporters do. Why aren't the left marching on Washington? And this was kind of sort of a question when I responded to Capitol... I was, re- I was react andying to uh, Capitol Hill riot protest uh, videos uh, a few weeks after. It was one of the first time I kind of started streaming. And, you know, some things I mentioned was just like, you know, well, if the left was doing this, we wouldn't have been like that. You know, I mean, sometimes it looks like we're doing that, but I'm like, well, if we were did it, you know, hypothetically, if we would, wanted to take the Capitol building, right, seize it disrupt uh, operations there, government. I mean, technically, when it comes to in Wisconsin and in other places, the left does quite a lot of disruption of, uh, of uh, business as usual. But usually, we're not charging into the room, but we're certainly marching through the halls. So it's interesting to see, like, when the right-wingers do in the Capitol, that's a big, you know, fuss. Why isn't every time the left march in through the Capitol whether it's in New York or Wisconsin. I mean, it wasn't Wisconsin. It was national news. I'm referring to like, oh God, it was, it was 2010. Oh no, no, no. It was the spring of 2011. Yes. The occupation of the uh, Wisconsin Capitol building. Now, was that considered terrorism and spitting on democracy? No, that was democracy. So that's, so if the left did a Capitol occupation, it would be like Occupy. Right. But see, the least are wise to that tactic now. They will not prevent us from taking space ever. They will force us out. They will tear gas the Capitol building. <laughs> and that's why we that's why the prepared wear gas masks. Anyway, so back to the question, why aren't the left marching on Washington? You know, why haven't we why haven't we organized a new Occupy movement? You know, the Occupy movement was like, you know, there's, there should be a promise that we are coming back. But we, we as a as a movement, as as a tendency, whatever political project, we haven't. 
It hasn't been our political project, mostly because after Occupy, there was some pretty good essays in a book published called The End of Protest that said we have to do something different. We should never do the same thing twice if we do, you know, because authorities are wise to it. They're not going to let us. They don't let you camp in parks. They don't let you hold public space for more longer than your permit allows. And you better have a permit or else you're getting tear gassed. That's what free speech rights mean in America. So the quality of life for most people in this country was already in decline even before COVID-19 virus killed, well, at the time, half a million people and put millions more out of work. Sore loser Trump supporters should not be the only group angry enough to mass in Washington with the expectation to bring about change. Leftists don't act like they should because they are still tied to Democrats who are devoted to crushing them as a political force. They rarely even bother to throw their left flank a bone. Until leftists break from the, with the Democrats, they will always be on a fool's errand, defending the party that is committed to keeping them neutered. Now they're using the, it's all a dog analogy. Biden promised wealthy donors that nothing would fundamentally change should he be elected. He declared opposition to Medicare for all, while the impact of COVID falls disproportionately on low-income communities. His pledge to raise the minimum wage to a meager 15 an hour is greeted as a sign of success when it is, in fact, a proof of failure. The, prompt, the promised two grand stimulus payment had fallen to fourteen grand, 1400 The number of unhoused people grows, and so do long lines at food pantries. There are a multitude of reasons to protest, yet the left is largely silent, restricting any action to social media debates. There is, now, there is no will to act in concert and make political demands. You know, we're kind of moving to, uh, after so many, you know, national movement failures, it's definitely, there's a consensus says like, we just have to build locally first. We have to build our local organizations. We have to build local or regional coalitions. And then we'll have the strength to make national demands. So, but it's others like myself and, and Black Agenda Report argue that, even when you do all of that, building it as a force of left-wing worker power is still not going to happen if half of those groups are going to be tied to the Democrats or majority of them. It's not going to be able to make demands on the Democrats because when election time comes around, they have to they have to bow, they have to fall in. Fall in line is what I mean. Moving on, the left were already marginalized even before Donald Trump's election. The damage done by decades of corporatist allegiance continues. Anyone who questioned bank bailouts, falling wages, or privatized public education was labeled unrealistic at best and a spoiler at worst. No spoiler of what, right? A spoiler is someone who messes up plans. Whose plans? Now, is the, now assuming, assuming election time, the, the, the plan is beating Republicans, right? How well do Democrats do that? Even when every lefty is on their side. They beat Republican, right? They beat Trump anyway. But what does that mean? What does that get us? I made the case, you know, about that last election time. Obviously, many people who want a better and more just country do not really believe that they can bring about the changes they want to see. They barely survive on the margins of every four years, hope, that the people determined to give them the proverbial bum's rush will suddenly have a change of heart and give them a hearing. I think I skipped the part. After the Democratic Party leadership coalesced around Biden, the deed was done yet again. 
Neoliberalism is again ascendant. Progressives have sho- been shoved aside and the sight of right-wing mobs results in sneering instead of the urge to join the fight. It is shameful that thousands of people believe that Trump won the election and were willing to wreak havoc against the symbol of the federal government without any countervailing action taking place or even being contemplated. Now I want to mention that I was on the cusp of going uh, like I did during Trump's inauguration. I went to D.C. I was going to go to Biden's inauguration to protest. To protest the inauguration, to protest the new president, to protest the system. And there was going to be an action there, though I was a little miffed ahead of time that the tone of the event was more like we're there to to push Biden left or we're there to challenge the Democrats to do better. We're there to not so much be oppositional as much as as to to make demands on the Democrats, which uh, I want to be honest, I've done more than once. It was in 2012, I believe. Yes, 2012, year after Occupy. I went to D.C. for a climate march. It was called March Forward for Climate. Forward for Climate. I. It was a kind of good time, but by the time the march was over, which, by the way, wait, so, so observation one, the march was short. It was... So it was a Democratic Party organized march or organized by the coalition of environmentalist groups that are all democratically aligned. So they're all friends with the Democrats. They're not there to kind of challenge and and yell and be loud and and aggressive, but it was there as like supportive. But there was enough, you know, there's some new energy there from Occupy. I was there because of Occupy, along with a busload of fellow compatriots. And we were there to wrap a rouse. You know, we were there to demand of Obama, still president, that he needs to be an actual climate warrior, or he needs to actually have a climate policy. We were up, we were angry at his all of the above policy, right? We considered this a betrayal. We consider it a tragedy. We consider it to be bad, <laughs> and it's something to be to be torn down, or something to be, you know, big frick you, and. uh but we were kind of outnumbered there. But uh, we were just marching around the White House, a big big square off of the mall. But also a big rally on the mall. And so we're not actually disrupting anything there. Um, protests, I feel, needs to be disruptive. And it was one of the many marches I've been in organized by, I'll just call them liberals slash progressives, that are not disruptive in any way. And it's like, what do we accomplish here? Because obviously nothing resulted in a better climate policy. Nothing like we were there in many, very large numbers, larger than January 6th, I'm sure. But we made, there was no impact. No one remembers the great um, forward on climate march or even the great climate march that occurred in Manhattan four years ago or it was five years ago. Forget. Maybe it was six. Again, another large march with a million people participating. Largest march that uh, I don't think we've America's ever seen. What impact has it had? We still don't have good climate policy. No Green New Deal. Not even a corporate Green New Deal. Not even a progressive, not even a half, half-baked half Green New Deal. Okay. So 
So I just wanted to go off that tangent about how I was ready. Yeah, yeah, so I didn't even finish the tangent. I was ready to go to Biden's inauguration. But because of January 6th, and I was going to book my train ticket in the next week, but I was, I was kind of waiting to finalize my plans and whether I was going or not. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe I had a gut feeling. I forget exactly what was on my head at the time. But maybe I was going to wait until January 6th or whatever to, uh, to wait. But I was, or, or rather, like mostly, I was going to wait until the last two weeks to book my ticket to make plans. And I guess I was, it was a good thing I did, I suppose, because as soon as after January 6th, all protests in D.C. during the inauguration was canceled. Because, well, A, it would be expected that the police presence would be oppressively thick and that we would not, even if we did want to be disruptive, we're not going to get away with anything. We would be kettled immediately. It would be Trump's inauguration on steroids. It would be bad. And it wouldn't be fun. It wouldn't be a good time, and it wouldn't be disruptive. We'd be crushed. And our protests would not be well-received. We'd be viewed as copying January 6th, trying to do what they did or something, even though there would be no chance that we'd be bum-rushing the Capitol because we wouldn't care about doing that. Maybe the, the mall itself, but that's that's the thing about Inauguration Day. The The mall is fortified with roadblocks. It's like a fucking war zone. At least it was during Trump, and it probably was the same during Biden. I doubt it was opened up because after January 6th, security will only be increased. We wouldn't be able to get within a mile of it. So, But anyway, even with that, um, the, the, the march, or it wasn't even march, it was just a rally on the other side of the Capitol building, uh, which I hadn't actually been in physically, uh, was canceled. And that was a big letdown, you know. So, yeah, big nothing. Left did nothing. So, where during Trump's inauguration, we got the memes, we got the burning limo, we got, like, you know, the stuff that we did then. We got uh, Richard Spencer getting punched. Great memes. That's an impact. That's, this is a cultural impact. <laughs> but, no, Biden got, Biden got inaugurated and put everyone to sleep, as it, as it probably should have. So, black people, um, back to the actual article here. Black people suffer the most from this dynamic. They are the most left-leaning cohort in the country, but their politics have been undone by the black political class of misleaders. This is something Black Agenda Report constantly harps about. They lay claim to representing millions of people, but in fact only represent themselves in the interests of their patrons. They're referring to the Congressional Black Caucus, which has not proposed meaningful legislation in a very long time, and they have not shown an indication to change now that a Democrat is in the White House. In fact, that is when the real backstabbing takes place. Democratic presidents bring welfare reform that impoverishes the already poor, deregulation of financial service, bank bailouts, health care plans that empower the private sector. There must be a complete rejection of the political status quo. A Democratic president with control of Congress should, have, should be seen and treated as an adversary. Biden is not a friend, nor is the CBC, or any phony progressives who call themselves a squad. The left need not riot the Capitol, but they must believe that they can get what they want. The era of the liberation movement of the 60s and early 70s should be remembered as a moment when millions of people made demands knowing that politicians did not want to meet them. That is how that time should be remembered. It can be repeated again if defeatist attitudes are rejected. 
Now, the attitude referred to is the one that I encounter most all the time, which is that we should only protest if those in power will meet with us, or we should protest in a form that pleases, if not brings the, those in power to the table, um, or rather does, you know, it, it can't be disruptive because that, 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 that upsets those in power. But history is that movements only got what they want when they were the most disruptive. Even as the Fed was cracking down and destroying and, and unrest was building and reactionary forces would come about. But I want to point out that reactionary forces come about no matter what is happening because they will be reacting to whatever is happening. The idea is to be what is happening. So at least what is happening is good for workers and black people and so on. And even the soldiers, you know, refund the VA as part of the universal health care plan so that no veterans left behind. So there must be a commitment to wholesale change from the top to bottom. The failed state must be taken on without hesitation or apology and dependence on the electoral system. Republicans fear the Capitol rioters and straddle the fence instead of denouncing the people who make up the bulk of their party. Democrats have no such concerns about the left and see them as an irritant to be placated certain moments. Leftists need not behave as the Trumpers do, but they must lose their own fears and leave the Democratic Party behind. It would indeed be shameful if the Capitol rioters are the only people who believe that they can achieve their political goals and are willing to act accordingly. And that's where she ends. So I'll move on, since I don't take up too much of my own time, with two more pieces. One is about um, the interplay between you know, an empowered right-wing extremist base or really a base that is willing to fight for what they believe in. And if that means bullying others or disrupting other people's way of life, even though they're doing, you know, they're the, they're the terrible people, uh, you got to respect them a little bit for it more than the cowardice of, well, we got to be nice and let's use the rule of law. But you know what? If we believe in a rule of law, we believe in democracy. We definitely don't want what they're doing. But we also have to be for something. And it can't just be for calling the cops who then shoot black people instead. Uh, or, or relying on laws and a constitution that doesn't guarantee many uh, of the rights that we require these days. You know, right to privacy or right to... So, you know... And yes, there is technically a right to privacy, but it's been eviscerated by many, many court uh, decisions. Not the, the Fourth Amendment is not, been, is not what it used to be. So anyway, this is an interesting article uh, written by the USA Today. So it's a bit of a, we call it, spectacle-ish. White extremists, so this is just one specific case, okay? may not even be indicative of a lot of things, but it's indicative of kind of, kind of the interplay of certain things. That, um, take it as you will. White extremism is winning in my Vermont town. I'm selling my animal sanctuary and moving. So it's like, what happens when Trumpers meet hippies? Uh, or at least one hippie. And then maybe that's the issue. The assault weaponized bullies are winning in my road. And I refuse to weaponize myself to fight back. My town is unsafe, especially if you're non-white. So he's referring to himself with that last one. This is written by Michael Shank. But he also contributes opinions, uh, but maybe this is, this is from the Voices section of the USA Today. 
don't know if he does so regularly or just this is a special case. So there's a movement metastasizing across America. Let me check. Let me just check the date on this. August of this year. There's a movement metastasizing across America. It's well-armed. It's extreme. And it's led largely by white men. They're enraged. They're feeling entitled. And they're taking ground wherever it's given. And while the movement clearly got new wind in the sails under the Trump administration, it's now self-sustaining. So much for all that uh, anti-Trumper stuff, right? The January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill was just the tip of the seething iceberg. As last week's anguished police... Well, it's the tip of the iceberg because that's those are just the people that could afford to fly to Washington. As last week's anguished police testimony of Congress made clear, this movement isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It's everywhere. It's even in Vermont, where I live, which some people mistakenly consider a progressive haven. It's bullied countless people of color in Vermont who had to flee their communities just uh, because it became increasingly hostile and unsafe for them. And now it's pushing me out, too. I'm selling my farm this summer, in fact, because the assault weapon bullies are winning on my road and I refuse to stoop to their level and weaponize myself to fight back. So he's running like a coward. I don't want to piffle that way, but I can't help it. I don't know why. It's not like I'm better. I also um, flee. I'm definitely more of a fleer than a fighter. Mm. It depends on the situation, but yeah. And this is definitely one of those situations where he can move around. He can move away. But let's move on. Uh, so he refers to this as the Wild West of the Northeast. In states like Vermont, it's easy to be an armed white extremist. It's why NBC Saturday Night Live did a sketch with actor Adam Driver suggesting that Vermont was a neo-Confederate paradise. It is. Of course, I don't care about Saturday Night Live, but I'm sure the readers of the USA Today do. It's got you got to use some kind of uh, reference, right? There's a little that, there's little to keep you accountable or keep you in check here. The Brady campaign once called Vermont's gun laws the worst in the nation. Guilford Center gives its gun laws a C-. As one local official told me, this is the wild west of the Northeast. And as I pack up my farm and move out, this is becoming all too clear to me. Our militias do well here. Not only does Vermont's Department of Public Safety fail to crack down on armed white extremists, due in part to lax local laws, the state police discriminate against the people of color running from those very extremists. I'm not making this up. Thus, you know, the police aren't a solution here, okay? So I'm making this, I'm not making this up. There are countless stories like this. In fact, if you're a person of color here in Vermont, the bias and discrimination shown by Vermont State Police are pervasive and persistent. Of course, that begs the question, why is USA Today publishing this white dude, a farmer guy, and not a person of color fleeing Vermont? Let's see. There are countless stories like this. In fact, if you're a person of color here in Vermont, the bias and discrimination shown by the state police are pervasive and persistent. This state is not a safe place if you are non-white, unarmed, or both. All of this sends a strong message to armed white extremists that there's nothing standing in their way, that they are free to rule and roost here. Yeah, you know, them and the police are on the same side, of more or less. And that's why I'm moving. After attempts to institute a simple noise ordinance, oh yeah, because that was going to do it, 
uh, to contain the hours-long recreational and erratic assault weapons use on my road in Brandon, not only did my town's leaders refuse to recognize the problem, they also emboldened the white extremists on my road by gaslighting my concerns. Basically, it means they were telling me that, ah, it's not so bad. Stop complaining. You're the problem. You're the one being the buzzkill, the problem here. You should just move out if you don't like it here. Love it or leave it. But of course, this is where, this is the question is like, so did he live on the same road with these guys and it was always the case and they just got worse under Trump or did they move in and or like actually organize and group together because of Trump? Like they found each other (laughs) because of President Trump. And now they're like, you know, they're doing all of their militia stuff. And he actually calls them that. Like, I mean, he says like it's a militia problem. So they're organized. This guy isn't. But more than that, the real uh, sort of tactical problem here is that he is a pacifist. So this then inspired retaliatory gunfire. So this is after being gaslit, you know, and told. So this is after him complaining, right? And this is what happens with any kind of... Um, any kind of jerk behavior is that, you know, when you, when you tell um, a, lar- a group larger than you to quiet down, they're going to get louder. And that's if it's just you and them. You know, if, if you're in a crowd and the rest of the crowd is really uncomfortable, they might actually go like, oh, um, you know, because I remember this from a book, like, you know, it was on a train. And I told, like, these guys who were being really loud in their conversation, like, hey, hey, it was a train. We're all hearing you. Uh, you mind, you know. And they actually felt bad. It was like, you know, they they were actually like embarrassed. But if there's no crowd, then it's like, get on my face. Who do you, who are you to tell me that like we're morally equal? Uh, So this then inspired retaliatory gunfire at all hours of the day, imperiling my legal property right to quiet enjoyment. And my farm, a 76 acre animal sanctuary that is home to some two dozen horses, cows, pigs, other animals. All of them rescued from abuse, neglect, or slaughter. And it just keeps escalating. Since I received death threats over July 4th weekend, it's been shocking to see how limited local police are in disarming these active threats. Of course, you kind of have to ask, like, what are they going to do? You know, it's an active, it's a death threat. Like, is a particular person, the most they can do is watch the situation. They're not going to preemptively arrest someone. Well, this is where, you know, you got to be able to defend yourself. But here's why this guy won't. Throughout this process, Vermont friends have advised me to weaponize and fight back, to not let the armed bullies win this one. As someone who grew up in a peace church from a long line of Amish and Mennonite pastors and preachers, and as someone who has studied and promoted peace building and conflict resolution work globally, the last thing I'm going to do is weaponize to, quote-unquote, win. But sometimes winning is about not losing. In this case, he's losing his farm though he's not losing it he's moving it so it's not really losing so yeah it would be a hollow battle if he won but what would winning mean you know shutting them up how would he do that it 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 sounds like he's the only one on the road of this of his thinking yeah you know because again you can be you can do things nonviolently, but you need numbers you need a big crowd to kind of go up to this like these meatheads and whatever and do your conflict resolution because <laughs> you can only do conflict resolution between equals it's got to be between equals and uh or or people who view each other as equals and 
It's a good question. What, what does it take to get a Trumper meathead to consider someone that they have always thought as being inferior for various reasons to be treat, treat them as an equal? Now, what suggestion is you weaponize and you get in their face with a gun and then maybe you actually, they'll see you as equal, even if they're very begrudging about it, like, I'm goddamn Antifa. And it's like, yeah, but <laughs> we did, in fact, put you in your place and you did back down. Now we can talk. You know, you can only talk once you've blunted the fist. Um, but that's what laws are for. So this is where this guy goes with, you know, there's a lot laws. So that's what laws are for. That's what government is for. That's what democratic governments is for. Of course, these guys aren't for any of that. So at least the last part, democratic governance. For these systems are failing us fast. The Vermont legislator has been lackluster in this regard, which is why the armed extremists keep winning. And while I'm moving north, like many of my friends of color have already done. Now, he says north. Does he mean Canada or Norver, Vermont? I'm thinking Norver, Vermont. Uh, like there's a north-south split in Vermont. Or does he mean Canada? I doubt he means Canada. Um, but away from this part of Vermont, he says part of Vermont, where armed white extremism appears to run rampant, I'm concerned that this will happen again. This is how nations become war zones. I'm on a short lease with this state and give it a few more years to restrain its armed white extremists or I'm gone. This isn't worth life or, and limb. Others have already left for similar reasons, which pretends poorly for a state already in population decline. Same goes for any county. What's most frustrating beyond losing the farm is how normalized this armed bully behavior is becoming in Vermont and across America. This is a dangerous, slippery slope, as other war zones can testify. We're patterning their destabilizing trends to a T. I've been involved in disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration processes overseas, and it's clear that's what's needed here now. But I think he's leaving out the part where America invades other people. I think we have to stop doing that. And that's where the other, we have to cut militarism abroad before we can even start thinking about doing it here or both happen at the same time. That's the Green Party's platform on it, you know. America's armed extremists are that armed. They're that mobilized. And they're in need of rehabilitation and reintegration back into society. Many of them have nothing to lose, including my neighbors. And until states like Vermont take this threat seriously, they will continue to seize ground and bully further. This is war, and we are refugees fleeing violent, extreme, and other racist non-state actors. It's time we take this fight seriously and draw the line because they are winning. And that's where he ends. Though, what exactly is he advocating for here? Sorry, I didn't read all of this before. But he's... He's advocating that, like, it's a war, but we got to fight the war with uh, non-not war, which, you know, is a very Amish Mennonite thing to say. Let's see. I mean, he says, he's, he's suggesting, or his thing is like, we have to stabilize by disarming and demobilizing right-wing militias. How exactly does one do that? Uh, in a legally way, or or in a way that um, governance funds. Uh, I guess um, I've covered bits like that, like peace zones, which refer to like um, poor areas. But these are not poor areas. These people have money or enough enough money, enough for ammo and salt rifles. 
but from there, let's wrap up with something completely different and someone that uh, I probably would disagree with if got in a room. Because kind of, I mean, he's just kind of a straight anarchist kind of guy. I'm going to follow up with an, with an anarchist now. He actually refers to himself as kind of a gender-fluid Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> with a blog instead of a bomb. I make no qualms about my intention to destroy American empire from the comfort of my suburban spider hole. Art is the deadliest weapon at the revolutionary's disposal, and I fully intend to use mine to affect the, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So it's, it's that kind of blog. So it's definitely more rhetorical and not intellectual uh, exercise. But I think it's a good topper for what I've been talking about, or at least, you know, to wrap things up. The blog is called Exile in Happy Valley. Of course, something, some kind of uber-ironic uh, play on being a suburban revolutionary or being a, a weirdo. And he wrote this in, also in July of this year. So again, nothing, nothing, nothing from the fall, but uh, but just a week or so before the last one I just read was written, which was in August. And the left may not protest because they're scotch in the Democratic Party, but that doesn't mean people resist uh, the status quo. Don't resist the status quo. It just shows up in social problems. It just shows up in social problems, right? Now, I think if you're a moderate. Or liberal, maybe liberal even. Social or political unrest, you know, actual the existence of BLM and movements is to be considered a type of social problem. Not just, not the solution to it actually, but something that needs to be placated and resolved for the sake of it. Maybe that's going too far. I don't, maybe I think it's, I think it's just far enough. But so with that tone, okay, the title is, get this, The Bright Side of Crime Waves. Turning into the evening news has, be, uh, has begun to take on all the charming qualities of a 70s Scorsese flick. Some nights I have to wipe the blood from the screen. From coast to coast, from sea to rising sea, the mean streets of America are being rocked by a crime wave the likes of which we've never seen. After a 30-year drop in violent crime, 2020 has seen the biggest single jump in homicides they, since they began recording such grim statistics in the 60s with the 25% rise in a single year. 2021 has all the makings of a Charles Bronson sequel. Naturally, the partisan elites are tripping over their... <laughs> tripping over themselves, looking for a convenient scapegoat to blame, so their home team of freckless plutocrats can score points over the bodies. The Democrats, led aimlessly to brunch by gentry old poster boy Joe Biden and his gray care handlers, are making a big to do out of blaming this all on America's toxic love affair of the Second Amendment. Meanwhile, their doppelgangers in the GOP are having a field day blaming the whole bloodbath of Black Lives Matter and the evils of moderate police reform. If you figured out already that I think they're both full of it, and give yourself a prize and make it something sexy. Well, it's true that more Americans than ever have happened to be packing heat during an explosion of gun violence, American gun ownership continued to rise precipitously throughout those 30 years between 1990 and 2020 when gun crime, well, when crime dropped like two eagles making love. This includes periods of time both before and after the assault weapons ban with seemingly zero meaningful fluctuation. 
Liberals love to blame violence on guns, but the truth is it makes about as much sense as blaming burglary on crowbars. It's a red herring for people to, who lack the will and or intelligence to ask why people are actually pulling the trigger. What is it about the last two years that pushed America from armed to armed and dangerous? Never missing an opportunity to outstupid their rivals, Republicans and their floffing flunkies on cable news want to blame this whole darn thing on us not being nice enough to cops. As silly as that sounds, I do believe they are accidentally in the right neighborhood, and I suspect that last summer's uprisings and this year's rise in crime share the same energy. But if anything, the police have brought this upon themselves, and the rest of us are behaving like the criminals they statistically fail to catch. Furthermore, defunding the police has largely become an empty campaign catchphrase for glad-handling progressives. The few cities that have actually gone through with such a reform have watered them down to the point of fecklessness. And many of the most violent cities in the country, like Detroit and Memphis, haven't passed any at all. America's police are just a bunch of tax-addicted crybabies hooked on playing the victim card like every other garden-variety psychopath. And the right are more than happy to hand the sniveling creeps a microphone. So, if not gun rights or police reform, then what is the real reason for America's frighteningly new craze of street violence? Where is the scapegoat? And here I come with the harsh truth again. There is none. Crime experts can, still can't even come up with an explanation for the 30-year drop before we saw the spike. All the statistics are notoriously fickle, especially when you consider that the primary sources for them are organized crime outfits like the FBI or your local police department. People have blamed everything from abortion to Krampus for the peace wave, and now that the party is over, for the, you know, the drop in crime over the last 30 years, that's what we call the peace wave, but now that the party's over, they're left chasing their tails to explain why it ended. The truth is, I can't tell you why Americans are killing each other like it's 1979 again. I can only give you the theory of one mad recluse with too much time on their hands. Now, the last big crime wave in this country saw in the 70s and 80s came on the heels of the epic fail of the 60s, when America's faith in its own institutions was at an all-time low. After My Lie, Watergate, the Pentagon Papers, and one too many dead Kennedys to choke up to cruel coincidence, Americans on both the left and right were set adrift on a sea of nihilism and trampled faith. With COINTELPRO, the FBI had effectively murdered the civil rights movement in its tracks, as it was finally hitting its revolutionary stride and the gory spectacle of the Vietnam War had ended as anticlimactically as it had begun, with little recognition of the failure and Hueys being pushed into the South China Sea. The government, the press, and even many of the renegades who defied them had all been exposed as corrupt and cowardly failures. The illusion of power those institutions had long held was shadowed along with the economy. So the everyday losers of the lumpen proletariat lashed out in ways both big and small without having any more idea why than the elitist experts who studied them. This 20-year violent hangover caused by the failures of liberal democracy only ended with the economic boom of the Clinton years, though it was a financialized boom. It was kind of a boom built on all kinds of dumb things, but wow, America was deindustrializing. 
which we all know was little more than a clever illusion built on a series of fickle bubbles inflated by neoliberal scam artists like Alan Greenspan. The rabble was kept in line for a while, even after the Great Recession with the empty-handed promises of Barack Obama or the bombastic hot air of Donald Trump. But these desperate illusions, along with any illusion of our government being in control of anything but the media, were all but shattered by their inability to prevent an easily containable pandemic following police state overreach of the lockdowns, which sent our Peter Pan economy to hell in a handbasket where it probably belongs. People are mad and hopeless. Their own figureheads behave like feral children like with chainsaws. So why shouldn't they? At the risk of being burned at the stake for heresy, I believe it, believe it or not, this may not be the worst development of recent history. America really is a fricked up place. And this turmoil proves that at least Americans' vital signs are working. With multiple new cold wars and a climate holocaust on the horizon, I would be more concerned if Americans remain docile, well-behaved, sheep like they were in the Clinton and Bush years. Crime is not an aberration, but a reflection of society. And to me, this crime wave shows that America's mask of sanity has cracked, and at least the poorest Americans are sharp enough to realize it. Their instincts are completely natural. Their actions just need to be directed away from each other and towards the state that has failed them. This is how a crisis becomes an opportunity. After all, what is a criminal but a revolutionary with a lack of direction? Fred Hampton had the right idea before he was whacked for his wokeness. He realized that in the 60s urban jungle of South Chicago, street gangs held the highest potential to be their neighborhood's answer to the Viet Cong. This is why our government had to kill him. When the derelicts of this sinking ship we call a country finally realize that we have the crew outnumbered and stop sitting, slitting each other's throats, then this show, called an empire, is officially over with enough time to reach lifeboats. God help me, but I'm rooting for the criminals. Peace, love, and empathy, Nikki. So that was a, a blog post from Exile in Happy Valley. There's others. Um, some I liked less, but uh, <laughs> again, another, another uh, post where I just like the title and i'm like well, okay i'm i need to like interested in reading this now of course it's it's way more rhetorical here it's not uh an actual argument or some kind of strategic intellectual discussion um but it's uh just just informed enough to make a lot of sense <laughs> and i want to bring up to close out this rhetoric with Crime depends on, on who is writing the laws or, or who's, who's propagating the laws, or rather who's uh, enforcing them. Police, and there's all kinds of crime, white collar, for example, that goes unpunished, unprosecuted, unenforced. Laws that are unpassed. I mean, laws are passed all the time by our liberal legislators to, uh, to rein in the excesses of corporate America. You know, tax laws, tax reforms even. And, uh, and there's a common, you know, meme of pointing out, I think it's growing in um, frequency, of seeing people point out that the ruling class, capitalists, have a tendency of finding loopholes, working their way, or sidestepping any law that's passed to restrict them. Level the playing field. Which leads to my, or any revolutionary conclusion that's, 
we're not going to have a level playing field as long as the mode of production or the social dynamics we have are in place. We got to do something different. And we have to expand our uh, notions of crime and, and law and order and, uh, and things like that. Because um, mass movements that change things peacefully are not using nonviolent and aren't killing anyone are just as easily criminalized as those that do. And they're just as easily crushed by the state as uh, BLM can attest. You know, very few in BLM are armed or dangerous. But, you know, you break a window or two and you're public enemy number one. Let's let's um, shake off the defeatist attitude that, you know, uh, that leads to uh, we can't disrupt. You know, we can't attack profitability or strike. You know, we can't take away someone's service that they need it. They need it. No, well, they do they really? I like this idea that I saw. It was a meme idea of um, aimed at low low workers. I mean, it's not a campaign yet, but it's it's an idea that could become a campaign. Where basically no one works for McDonald's. Just no one works for McDonald's until they raise their uh, standard wage to twenty. You know, that's how we get the minimum wage up. You just don't. You just pick a restaurant chain. Make a McDonald's, why not? And just say, no one works for McDonald's. You know, with a worker shortage, everyone's hiring. Work for one of the other chains. Just don't work for McDonald's. Everyone doesn't work for McDonald's until they raise it to 20. And then they will. And then we can all switch to McDonald's. And then if anyone other chain wants any of their workers back, they will also have to, you know, move up to 20. It's not really how it works, but I mean, it's it's sort of how it works, yeah. It's, I mean, as, as soon as you start doing collective action like that, that's what changes things. And there's nothing illegal about it, right? But there were uh, some, you know, some times where not working is just as criminalized as, as, uh, as hustling in any other way. So, okay, one minute left. My profound thanks for listening to the Three Left Show. My name's Dan Platt. Um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter. I post episodes there. This show is podcasted. You can find the archive as well as the show site at www.3lefts.news. Search online for The Three Lefts Show. Got to include the the. So otherwise, but anyway, keep it rad. Uh, Practice the ideas you've uh, found or just, uh, I mean, this is more of the thinking episode. So just think about the ideas shared here and try to integrate them with uh, more practical and more... uh, (laughs) <laughs> more safe things and uh and then have at it uh have a good one folks i'm um, just gonna end the show thank you very much be well be cool bye <laughs>